About a little less than a year ago, I was in REI, and I wanted to buy a tent. And not just any tent, a really nice tent, and one that uh, you could uh, uh, weather anything. You know, I just kind of looked online and did all the research. But what I didn't notice when I went into REI was that the tents I was interested in, I couldn't, I couldn't put together on my own. You know, that was kind of my idea of camping. Okay, kids, you just stand aside here. Watch Dad put the tent together, right? But the tents I was looking at actually required help. You can't, you can't assemble the tent you're interested in, Mark. I would say, unless you have uh, at least one other person with you along the way. And I guess that makes sense. I mean, camping is supposed to be a group activity, right? You're just going to do it with a, a group of people. And there are a number of things in life that actually are group activities. For example, another one is a party. You can't just have a party by yourself. Uh, that requires a group of people that are part of it. Um, soccer or other sports, they're, they're team sports, Right? You do it with a company of other people. Square dancing, I guess that would make the list of something you've got to do with other people. And if you're Scandinavian, the list is actually really long. If you're Swede, there are all sorts of things that you can't do alone, like changing a light bulb. (laughs) How many Swedes does it take to change a light bulb? My dad told me this early on. It's three. One to hold the bulb and two to move the ladder in a rotation. You know? And, you know, there are more than just Swedes you know, that can't do things alone. Lawyers, for example. How many lawyers does it take to change a light bulb? Well, more and more because the regulations just continue to be more and more significant. Or um, how many, how many uh, psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? In that case, it is only one, but the light bulb has got to really want to be changed. <laughs> I heard this one this morning. How many Amish people does it take to change a light bulb? What's a light bulb? There you go. <laughs> so we're, we, could just, we can just continue on with this, but I feel like I'm just strained from things. And if you know my jokes ahead of time, I better quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> Laughing. You want to do that in company with other people as well, too. How many people does it take to discern what is best? You see, this is where I think we've kind of missed, perhaps, the point of what Paul is saying. We've looked at those six words, able to discern what is best. And so oftentimes when we read the scripture, we've looked at it and say, well, that's me, right? And Paul, when he talks about this longing he has for each of us to be able to discern what is best, did you realize he's talking about actually doing it together? I want to read the prayer for you, and you can even pick up that sense of Paul talking about a group of people discerning what is best together. And then I want to look at some commitments that are necessary for that. We go back to Philippians chapter 1 where Paul begins his prayer. And he says this, I thank my God every time I remember you in all of my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge 
and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to his glory and to his praise. Do you see that? Paul is talking about the ability to discern, but he's talking to a group of people along the way. What are the three commitments? I want to mention three that I hope will help us. The first is this. We commit to each other. We commit to each other. We discern together. Paul speaks in chapter 1, verse 5, of this partnership that he has had with the people of Philippi from the first day until now. They've been on a journey together. There are stories that are told from the first day through all of the ordeals that Paul references in the second part of chapter 1 until where they are right now. And he anticipates that they will be doing it together until the Christ, they, Christ Jesus, visits them. This journey towards Christ-likeness, this fruitfulness in righteousness, and it all happens on this long journey we take together. It is us, we, that are able to discern what is best. It is God doing good work in us. We are filled with the fruit of the righteousness of righteousness. This means this that Christian life, the Christian life is a team sport. It is intended, it is created to be done together. In fact, we're referred to as the body of Christ. Paul uses that metaphor and and it means that there are various elements, all of them that are essential. The, The hand needs the eye and every part of the body needs the other part of the body in order to be a fully functioning representation of who Christ is in the world. We've got to do it together as a team. This is it. Welcome to a walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? We're going to do it together in community. So much so that Paul actually refers to us as brothers and sisters. I don't get to do this by myself. In fact, I can't do it by myself. It's something that we do together. In Acts chapter 2, when the church began, John Stott in his commentary in the book of Acts looks at them all being gathered together in one place and and they were in each other's homes and they were sharing meals together and sharing other parts of their lives with each other in that place. And John Stott makes this observation. He says, he says this, people don't belong to the church, that is the capital C church, without coming to faith in Christ. So what it actually means to be in the church. You come to faith in Christ. You, you don't belong to the church without that walk with the Lord, that faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, and people do not come to faith in Christ without belonging to the church. It just goes with it. So when I come to the place in my life and I recognize I've come to the end of myself and I need to, need to respond to God's gracious invitation to forgive me, to restore me, to make me into what I was intended to be, something supernatural happens. In fact, it says that the Holy Spirit comes into our life and we're not only forgiven, but God's Spirit resides within us. In Ephesians, it talks about us being sealed by the Holy Spirit. This transformative thing happens where I am actually changed absolutely and utterly, but when I am, I'm introduced to my brothers and sisters. That's what happens. 
We don't do this alone. It's a team sport. And so throughout the book of Acts, we see God's people getting together, even getting together to discern what is best. In Acts chapter 2, they're gathering together in one room, and they're confused. They don't know exactly what's going to happen next. And they were all together in one place, it said. And this powerful manifestation of the Spirit of the living God came into that room as a rushing wind. It was a dramatic thing that happened. They were gathered together in one place, and God, through them together, showed who he was as they went out and spoke in languages they didn't know ahead of time. It was this remarkable and extraordinary display of the Spirit of God in that group together. Then we go to other places. We go to Acts chapter 15, and there they are again, gathered together in one place trying to solve a puzzle, actually trying to solve a controversy that was uh, brewing between them in regards to what do we do with the Gentiles. And, And as they were gathered together in one place, the Holy Spirit showed up again. It wasn't the violent rushing wind this time. It was in the compilation of a letter and the ability to agree and know how to move forward. Acts chapter 2, it's a rushing wind. Acts chapter 15, it's a letter. Guess what? It's the same thing. It's God's people gathered together, seeking God's direction, and God shows up in a variety of ways, but he always shows up because God's people are intended to discern together. And we see it over and over again in the New Testament that there are these encouragements and imperatives in regards to what life looks like together, to encourage one another, almost 50 different times in places in the New Testament, to love one another, to accept one another, to forgive one another, to confess your sins to one another, to be at peace with one another, to serve one another, to bear one another's burdens. You get it, right? Uh, that's what it is. God, it, God calls us together, and it's a team sport. But there's another piece of this, and that is that these relationships that God intends for us are long-term enduring relationships. Paul, after all, said, from the first day until now, plenty of stories to tell. These people would live together. These people would hold funerals for each other. And in some ways, I think that that's what God has for his people together in community. We're going to know each other's stories. We're going to go to one another's funerals. We're going to celebrate what God did in lives because we saw so much of it. We saw the way God worked through hardships and through celebrations. And there is a rich story to tell. But it's not just simply the story to tell. It's the, in, it's the intersection of my life with your guidance and your counsel and your perspective along the way. How can I discern what is best on my own? Not very well. I cannot. Because I come with my own bias, my own perspective, and I'm, I'm in the midst of a situation, and I walk away from that, and I defined it in one particular way, and it's only later that someone says to me, Mark, let me tell you what I saw that took place there. And I can discern what is best because I have people around me that were in those circumstances with me. I regard a person's counsel because that person has lived a life with me and knows me. That person knows whether my bent is towards optimism or pessimism and provides the other element that's necessary. 
That person knows what happened 20 years ago and can read that circumstance better than I can because I was so embedded in the emotion of it. You see, it's just the way God intends for us to discern together. It's not just a verse that pops out there. It's a life that we actually live in the company of others so that it, every good work might be carried on to completion. Verse 6. So that our lives might be characterized by the fruit of righteousness because we're in it together and we're better together. We commit, we commit to each other. The second aspect of this, and that is that we commit to the gospel. This life that we live together is described by this, by this word. So he has the prayer in the very first part of chapter 1. And then he tells some of his story and all of the difficulties that come along the way. And then he gets back to what he was talking about in verse 27. He says, so whatever happens, and he had talked about what had happened and what might happen. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We commit not only to each other, but we commit to the gospel. Whatever happens, I'm going to commit myself to living in a manner worthy of the gospel. I have a clear and certain objective. It is to represent the gospel. This means it will advance the gospel. So anything we discern together, if it doesn't pass the advancing the gospel test, then we go back and we, we evaluate some more. And we've even talked about the gospel. You can see it on the, on the artwork in the wall in the foyer. What is the gospel? There are four beautiful features of it. The first one is that God is good and beautiful. This is good news. God is good and he is beautiful. The second is that God tells us the truth about our brokenness. The third is that God rescues us and restores our relationship with him and even with others. And the fourth part of it is that God calls us on this adventure, that we actually get to live and breathe and be a part of that prayer we pray. Your, uh, uh, um, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And did you notice that every element of the gospel has this sense of what it means to live it together in community? God is good and beautiful, and it's seen in the way we love each other. God tells us the truth about our brokenness and it's seen as we confess our sins one to another. We live with the humility that's a part of it. You see, we actually represent the gospel. And that's what God is saying. And whatever, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So not only does what we discern together have to pass the test, will it advance the gospel, but there's another piece of it. Will our life together reflect the gospel? That phrase that Paul uses there, in a manner worthy of, is used in the New Testament one other time in the book of Acts. And it's a reference to a person who doesn't, you know, mind your manners or behave. It's actually loaded with the significance of citizenship. And, and uh, scholars actually think Paul took this phrase out and used it intentionally because the people in Philippi were primarily Greek citizens. They were Roman citizens. And they were pretty proud of it. In a manner worthy of had something to do with the way they would live out politically and, and in, in the course of commerce and their citizenship, what it meant to be Roman. They knew it. It's not just behave. It's you live a certain way when you're a citizen. You think a particular way. You approach things in a particular way. You have rights and obligations that come with it. 
And so that's what Paul is talking about here. You know what it's like to live in such a manner that a Roman citizen does. Let me ask you to use that same construct in regards to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To conduct your life in such a manner that is representative, that is a reflection of the gospel of Christ. This is why in chapter 2 it shouldn't surprise us that in verses 1 through 5 it talks about us having the mind of Christ, verse 2 of chapter 1, for the sake of the gospel. And you see what Paul is doing here? He's talking about us being able to discern what is best, and he describes the prayer. And then he talks about the gospel of Christ and us living for the gospel of Christ. And the very next thing he talks about is, guess what? You guys make sure you live in unity. If you're going to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to live in a spirit of, and actually in the practicalities of, unity. Gospel and unity. Have you ever been in a church service where the, you, you think the pastor or the one speaking actually knows exactly what happened in your life last week? And you say, oh, I, they, the pastor, the pastor uh, knew exactly what was going on. My, my spouse must have called him or something like this. Well, I don't know how Yodia and Syntyche got that information, to, some, that information about them having a dispute that's described in chapter 4, verse 2. But it, Paul was preaching right to them. I mean, there was a conflict that was going on in the church. Get to chapter 4, verse 2, and you'll see it. I mean, this guy says, you know, you think Yodius comes up to says, Pastor, you were preaching right at me. And Paul says, that's exactly right. I was preaching right at you. And, uh, and, and this is so important that Paul just comes right out with it. He was saying to Yodius and Syntyche, you guys, get along with each other. This is what it means to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. But it's not just because he wanted him to behave. It's because he wanted a body of believers together that would be able to discern together what is best. God calls us into connection with each other. And this means over the long run, we will have challenges that accompany us along the way. Expect it to be challenging. We commit to the gospel. We commit to what it means to live out the gospel. And the gospel is this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if I'm going to live out the gospel, it means I'm going to live in community with people that while they might still be sinners, if Christ showed love to me while I was still a sinner, sacrificial love, it means I'm going to do that with others as well. And Paul says, if you're going to discern what is best, you're going to live in relationship with people that are still sinners. And I will even work in a place like that. Don't, don't bail on a group based on the sinfulness you see. How can people help us discern if we bail on one group after another? I've done this. I was in, I've been in small groups in my life, and you know what? I didn't really like them very much, and they didn't really appreciate me like I thought they ought to. And so I just go to a group that appreciates me more until they get to know me. And if I keep doing that, go from one small group to another to another, guess what? Nobody's going to know enough of my story to say, hey, wait a minute, Mark. I, there's something I know 
that you need to be reminded of right now. And I can just jump from one group of friends to another to another. Did you know what was true about the first century church? They had no options. Think about that. The church of Philippi, they couldn't go anywhere. There wasn't the second Baptist church of Philippi down the street. Isn't that interesting? So they had to just live among each other from the first day till now. And it gave them this capacity to grow in the fruit of righteousness. And we're trying to cultivate this even at Hillcrest in the context of our small groups. Some of you maybe know, first week came out, what did we have? We had a covenant, a behavioral covenant. We began to ask this question, what does it mean for us to live with each other? What does it mean for us to speak in encouraging ways and listen to one another and, and behave with one another well? That's important. You know, our small group, we're having a blast. We're still on the honeymoon. The food's still great. Conversation's great. But you know what? That honeymoon will be over someday. Um, and and, and it's, it's a good thing that it will be. When something happens in the life of our group and it, it just kind of bothers one of us a little bit. And then we stay in it and we learn how to behave together. And we discover that we and us actually grow up into Christ-likeness, which is the fruit of righteousness. You see, that's when it really starts to happen. And that's what God has called us to. So that, so that people will say of that group, wow, look at the way they love each other. And it's a holy love. The word holy means unique, not seen any place else. It's that kind of love. They stick with each other over time and show care and encouragement and compassion and forgiveness with one another. I have a young man that I'm mentoring, and he's part of a church, and their small groups are actually called gospel communities. <laughs> I love that. I'm not advocating for a name change around here. But I mean, isn't that just so, so cool? To be a, a gospel community. We're about the gospel. And we're going to represent the character of the gospel as we do life together. So these are the first com two commitments. One is we commit to one another, and the second is, is we commit to the gospel. And then Paul goes on, and he gets even more practical for us, and it brings us to our third commitment, and that is we commit to Christ-like humility. And in your small groups, you're going to get into this this week as you unpack it, those, first, those four verses, and then into this hymn, actually. It, it's actually a hymn that was written about Christ and the way he, the way he gave, gave himself up, considered himself nothing. And you'll get to dig into that this week and think about applications for it. But I just want to highlight a couple pieces of this. The parts of it he mentions, don't do this, don't do this. But there are a couple things that he tells us to give attention to. And I want us to note that before we, uh, before we um, wrap it up and talk a little bit about next week. The first is found in verse 3. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. We need to realize that other people matter. 
their perspectives matter, their viewpoint, their significance matters. You know, when I was a kid, I read this, and it might have been the translation that I read it in, but I felt like God was telling me that I had to live with false modesty. I'm really better than you, but I'm going to act like I'm not. You know, that's the way I read it. Like, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to lie? I am really smart. They're not. What am I supposed to think about that? But that's not what's meant here. It's, it's actually to, to recognize, recognize the value of the whole as compared to the value of the one. And the whole is better than the one. To, to regard the value of everyone else. And I've just got one little piece of it and I need the humility to listen. And so when I'm about to do something or say something or write something, I say, tell me what you think of this. And invariably, after I have that conversation, what I'm about to say or think or write is different than it was before I had the conversation with those others. Why is that? Actually, I consider them better than me. And they help me. And I just have to say to you, every significant decision I've made in my life that's been worthwhile has happened as a result of a group of people around me that have spoken wisdom into it. And that's the way God intends for us to function. It's not simply that the whole is better than the individual, but the Holy Spirit accompanies, enters our life and gives us gifts and abilities that are different than everyone else's. Those spiritual gifts that God gives to other people, we all need them around us in those of us around us so that they might speak into our lives with a perspective or a strength or a capacity that we don't have individually. Value others above yourself. So we commit to Christ-like humility. It means when we've got major decisions, we've got significant decisions, we go to a group of people. And we ask them for counsel and perspective along the way. And then there's a second aspect of it that we see in verse 4. And that is that we look to the interests of others. We cannot end up thinking that discernment is about God helping me with my stuff. The end point of discernment is that God helps me to help others. The interests of others. I mean, can you imagine how narrow and self-absorbed it would be if all of us thought that spiritual discernment was about what God is going to say to me for my stuff. And that's not what we see here. We need to remember that his objective is for larger purposes than my needs. In fact, in Ruth Haley Barton's book, she talks about this and she says this, one of the first lessons we learn about discernment from Jesus anyway is that it will always tend towards concrete expressions of love with real people rather than theological conversations about theology and philosophy. Such conversations are valuable only if they lead eventually, lead us to more concrete expressions of love for the real people who are in need around us and in our world. If such conversations don't move us towards concrete action in the world, we become the proverbial noisy gong and clashing symbol. That's what God has called us to, to look to the interests of others. And then Paul wraps it up, and you can just see that this is exactly what he was talking about when in verse 12 he talks about, Dear friends, work out your salvation. Work out the reality of the gospel with a sense of fear and trembling, awe and regard for God. For God who works in you, he will work in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Work out your salvation. God will help you to discern. And then in verse 14, 
and make sure you're getting along with each other. See, the whole thing goes together. Now, I want to talk about a tool and then a request for next Sunday. The first is this, and you're going to use this in your small groups. It's a tool for prayers of discernment. And we've actually used this along the way uh, to, 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 to say, God, we want to know what you have to say. And it's a three-part time of prayer. And the first part of that time of prayer is a pr- t- taking some time for quiet trust. To just say to God, God, we want to trust you. Uh, and we just are coming before you, and we're going to open our hands up, and um, we're going to say we trust you, and we want you to speak into our lives. Prayers of quiet trust, and do that together in the group. And then the second phase of that prayer is to pray prayers of indifference. I love this part. Uh, I, I got so many agendas in my head, and this just kind of knocks the, knocks the knees out on them. And I say, God, I want to be indifferent to anything that's in my head, that's my bias, my thing, my deal. And God, would you just, would you just give me indifference about those perspectives? This has been so rich as we've gotten together as a Hillcrest leadership team and as a staff together and the people that are praying with us in this process to say, God, we don't, we don't want it to be ours. We want to be indifferent to our own bias or desires. We want what you want to give. And then we go to that third section, which is a prayer for wisdom. And we're going to encourage you to do this in your small groups. And you might even take those three things. Remember those three areas that we talked about at the beginning of the series? What three things do you want God to give you the ability to discern what is best about? And if you don't do it in your small group, do it with some friends. To go through that quiet trust, indifference, and asking for wisdom along the way. So there's a tool, and it's going to help you along the way, and it'll, it'll really kind of build it or embed it into your life. We trust more as you actually get to do it again. Oh, this is how this feels. This is why this is significant. And then finally, one request, and that is that you come back next week for Vision Sunday. We have been through a process, and I have to tell you, it started almost a year ago. We brought somebody in from the denomination, and as they were just helping us know what to do next in some areas, one of the things we discovered is this, is we need a far more clarity in regards to who we are and where we're headed. Be able to know it, to not launch off on something that doesn't characterize the roots and the character and the DNA of what God made Hillcrest to be, to know who we are and to embrace that and to ask God, where is that going to lead us? Where will we be headed with it? And so we just felt compelled to work this through, and the Hillcrest leadership team gave some attention and direction and leadership to the staff in this regard to say, get this one figured out. Talk about, pray about, work through who are we and where are we headed. And we had our first meeting together as our staff leadership team on August 11th and just asked, God, we need some guidance here. And we've met at least once a month early on and then a lot more than that into November early part of December and into January as we've worked together with the staff, with our whole ministry staff, and with the Hillcrest leadership team just saying, God, God, what is it that characterizes this gift of a church that you've given to us and to this community and to the world? And what does it look like for us to live into the future of that? And next week, I want to talk about the broad themes that we believe are a part of what our future will look like, and they, they correspond with the way God made us as a church. 
And then that evening, I want you to come back and I want us to wrestle with it because this church is populated by leaders and people that are seeking the Lord as well too and say, okay, this is the broad idea. These are the key, the, the key points of it. Now, what does it mean for us to actually live that out practically and organizationally? What does that look like? And we're going to ask for perspective and, and for your sense of what God is saying along that way too as we spend that time together Sunday night uh, and seek to discern the specific means by which we can accomplish the purposes that God has for us. So I'm going to ask you even during the course of this week to be praying for us as a church as we have been for months and months and months. Uh, God, we, we want to trust you. God, we want to be indifferent um, to our own personal uh, uh, perspectives and we want your wisdom in what we do next along the way. So we're going to ask you to be praying about that. There was a guy at REI that said to me about tents. If you're going to go big, you're going to have to have the help of others. And that's true in your life. If you're going to go big, if you want the ability to discern what is best, you're going to have to have the help of others. And as a church, if we're going to go big and have a future, we're going to need the help of others. Our prayer is that God would help us to discover the fruits of righteousness because we do it together. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your willingness to let us in on the things that you want to do in the world. And that it not only benefits us, but it makes an impact for your kingdom. And so, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that you would let us in on what that looks like. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.